You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand His decisions and His ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give Him advice? And who has given Him so much that He needs to pay it back? For everything comes from Him and exists by His power and is intended for His glory. All glory to Him forever. Amen. Romans chapter 12. A living sacrifice to God. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time, for this space, uh, this sacred hour. You've drawn us together to hear you speak. Lord, we come with hands open to receive blessings from you. And now we thank you for the blessing of your word and pray that you would speak clearly to us. I pray that we would have hearts open to receive your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If I haven't met you, my name's uh, Jonathan, we decided this morning at the early service that my name is now Jonathan. Um, you might have known me as Jono up until this point, but in my long service leave that I just returned from, I, um, during that time I turned 37, which everyone knows is the cutoff point for being known by a kind of four-letter nickname. So, hey, I appreciate that giggle. And apologies to... Um, Mick and Chaz. We're going to um, jump right into Romans, uh, the end of Romans chapter 11. So I encourage you to leave your Bible open there. We've only got a few verses, but so much that I believe God wants to communicate to us. With your finger in the page, I'm going to call your attention to the screen because I want to show you a photo. This is a photo taken way back in 2015. It was uh, a photo taken on the occasion of my ninth wedding anniversary. That's me and Renee. And we, uh, you might notice there, there's a combination of elation and exhaustion, um, which is what anyone feels when they've been married for nine years, right? No. No, no. I mean, elation and exhaustion because we had made it to the, the, the top of a, um, a hike called the Scenic Trail, or the Scenic Rim, which is, um, which is out there in Bacchus, past Bacchus Marsh in the Lerderdurk State Park. And um, it's, it's, it's a pretty good hike, especially if you um, sit down for a living like I do. And it's uh, 16 kilometres, and, and there's, there's nearly a kilometre of that which is just upward climb. So it takes a bit to get, to get it done. And so we're here halfway through the hike at the, at the summit overlooking... The, uh, the Great Dividing Range and just taking in the beauty and grandeur of that vista. 
Both Renee and I, uh, part of the reason we're together, I think, is because we both, um, we both have the same means by which God ignites in us um, passion for him. Um, it, it came together initially out of a, a great desire and, and sensitivity towards things of justice and mercy. That's how we got together. And then it moved through to um, and including um, receiving God's blessing in creation, the, the general revelation of God in the things that he's made. That's what, that gets us going. And so we're here, and, and it's not for the first time. We just sort of spontaneously erupt in praise and thanksgiving to God. This is, this is what God has wired us for. If you're a Christian, if you're born again, he, he gives you a, a medium-rare scotch fillet or uh, the view from the scenic room. He gives you these things in order that you might overflow in worship. This is what we've got over the materialist, the materialist who believes that all that can be received is, it comes to them through their five senses and all that exists is the things of the material world. They eat steak and enjoy it. They go for hikes and enjoy the view. But for us, it goes beyond that. We experience the, the, the visceral, um, pleasurable experience and then it rolls up into praise. And like C.S. Lewis reminded us in his uh, meditation on the Psalms, it's the praise that completes the joy. It's like next level joy as we praise God for what he's given us. I've got one other photo here which is, I just like because it's, um, it's like one of those Bigfoot photos um, where like, there's this little fairy that's being captured in the background, a little elf. Apologies about the mug in the forefront. So here's, here's why I show you that photo. I think that's exactly the experience that Paul has had up to this point in Romans. He's got to the end of Romans 1 to 11. He has scaled heights, theological heights, that are unmatched in literature. He, what he has put on paper in Romans 1 to 11 is without peer in terms of a um, work of literature that is focused on an exposition of theology, namely the theology of of. of, of um, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel, unmatched. And he gets to the, the, the summit of this treatise and he looks out over the vista of God's mercy, his cosmic grace from eternity past to eternity future. And he looks back on all that he's written and expounded on that fact and he, and, and he, and he explodes with praise and worship. You might like to read it with me, right? This is the very end of chapter 11. Like, I, I imagine him just not being able to even control himself as he writes this out. This just flows out. In verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is his mountaintop moment. And from this point, as we're going to see, the rest of the book is a working out, an application of all that 
gold that he's mined up until this point. But before he sets off laying out for us a pathway to live as, a, as the beautiful bride of Christ that, that God wants us to be as his church, before he lays that out for us, he, he sits and, and, he, and, he, and he just invites us in to see God for who he truly is. So I want to break this down a little bit for us, this little hymn that he's written for us. First of all, that, that first verse, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. He wants us to know that, that God is all-knowing. And that is one of the most basic fundamental attributes of God, right? He's omniscience. He's all-knowing. And so we learned that in, in Sunday school and we just kind of we, we just assume that it's true. But, but think about it for a minute. This is what my son Judah is thinking about at the moment. He's, he's four, and he has said multiple times this week, he's just out of nowhere, completely randomly said, but how does God know everything? He can't, he can't get his head around the fact that God's got his head around everything. It's, and four-year-old or 40-year-old, it's hard to, to get our heads around, right? Like that God knows all things. It's part of what makes him God. But it's not just that he knows all things. It's, it's not that, that he's all-knowing. Paul says he's also all-wise. So, it's one thing to know stuff. It's one thing to be smart. It's a whole other thing to be able to apply that knowledge rightly. And that's what Paul's saying here. God doesn't just know everything. He applies his knowledge perfectly. It's not just a, an intellectual state that he has. It's a moral quality. He knows how to act rightly. Everything he says is both true and good. So I know from my experience, I've got lots of smart friends. I love talking to smart people because... I'm not that much, and so I can get a little bit of what they've got if I speak to them and listen to them. That's great to have smart friends. It's another thing to have wise friends. The people you go to when you're suffering, when you're, um, when you're um, confused, when you need guidance, you don't just go to smart people, you go to wise people. You go to people who can take knowledge and apply it rightly with wisdom righteously. And what Paul's saying about God is there's no false dichotomy there. He is all-knowing and all-wise. It means that every word he speaks to us is good. It's what like, compels the psalmist to say, you know, that the word of God is like, it's like honey, it's like gold. It's good. And then he goes on, he says, his paths are beyond tracing out. I love this, I, lo I, love what, um, I love what being so filled with the Spirit and so taken in by the awesome grandeur of God does to people. It causes them to become poetic. I love that. This is, this is what drives poets and songwriters. It's, it's, it's coming to grips with a reality like love or fatherhood or whatever, sex or like coming to 
to coming to grips with a reality and then finding, I don't have the words to describe how good this is. And so we're forced into art. We're forced to come up with ways of saying and singing things that go beyond mere language. And so that's what happens to Paul. He says, God is so incredible, all-knowing, all all-wise, that his paths are beyond tracing out. It's like we can't follow him everywhere he goes. He's, he's beyond us. This is humbling to remember that we don't actually have God in a box, that Aslan is not a tame lion. His paths are beyond tracing out. Now, this is, that can do one of two things for you. That can, like Paul, it can reassure you that God is God and that I am not, and so therefore, like a child with a good father, I can trust him. Or it can lead to despair and frustration. Like, I don't know what God's up to all of the time. And that can be scary. It can be unnerving. It can be disorientating. I told you about the mountaintop experience at Lerderdurg State Park and the, and the praise and thanksgiving that flowed out of me at that point. But last month, I had at least two occasions in my car where I screamed at God, What are you doing? What are you doing? I don't know if I can trust you. Things aren't going according to plan and I can't trace your paths. Which is why Paul says in the next verse, he says, Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Now, here's what I believe about that moment in the car. Frustration, anger, shaking fist at God, putting him in the dock and asking him to answer for his crimes. Here's what I know about that situation. It's wrong. I'm out of place. Here's what I also know. God is big enough to deal with that thing that I'm doing. He's not like, I know as a parent, when, the, when your kid says, I hate you, he's not... He's, He doesn't recoil from that and have his feelings hurt by that. He knows who he is and he knows who I am. He knows the circumstances in which that I'm I'm giving voice to. He knows all of these things. He's not threatened by me. But I need to remember that no one is God's counsellor. No one can sit in judgment over him. No one can offer him a piece of advice that he receives like, oh, wow, I, had to, I just didn't think of that eventuality. God is God, and God is good. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To God be the glory forever. We talk about this this idea of of God being the supplier of all things, the founder of all things, the source and and, um, culmination of all things. We talk about it a lot when we're talking about giving financially to gospel work inside and outside of this church. The fact that God has supplied all of our needs and we give out of that supply. The fact that uh, everything we have comes from him and we, as King David says, we give to him out of his hand, right? That, that's a fundamental truth about 
resources, about economics from the Christian perspective. But Paul says it's bigger than finance. This, this is pertaining to all of life. Everything is not only from him and through him, but it's for him. I can tell you, I have never once in my life enjoyed any measure of human flourishing um, or fulfillment when I have thought, God owes me here. And I've had cause to think it, right? I understand the psychology of it. Like maybe I've just had a really hard work, uh, week at work and I'm you know, doing this for the Lord and I'm trying to build his kingdom. As soon as I feel any measure of entitlement, that, like God owes me for anything, my capacity to receive blessing from him dives. I, I'm just telling you, that's a fact. And the other thing that happens very insidiously, this is where the, the enemy is on point. He uses that entitlement to make me think that I deserve all manner of things. Like, I can do this thing that I know is manifestly against God's will, but he kind of owes me. So, none of you are nodding. I know you know what I'm saying. God is no one's debtor. He owes us nothing, which is why his mercy and his grace are so beautiful. And that's where he turns next. So check it out. We're going into a very big um, plot change in this letter, into the practical outworking of all that we've been seeing over the last 20-something weeks. We're moving in now into this practical theology, which will take us through to the end of chapter 16, all right? So here we go, verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, right? Therefore. Therefore, not just therefore, the two verses I've just said, but therefore, in view of chapter 1 to 11, therefore, having said all that I've said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So here's what we need to remember. Paul, as he's, as he's raised this image, this very compelling image of, of, of Christians being living sacrifices, he's speaking to a congregation in Rome who knows what that means, who knows what sacrifice means, like literally what animal sacrifice means. If you look at at human history, it's interesting that every culture that's ever lived has been religious, and just about every culture that's ever lived has had some idea of a sacrificial system. It wasn't peculiar to the Jews, though their understanding of it in, in light of what Yahweh communicated to them was very unique, but animal sacrifice, this idea that that something can die in order to appease the gods or, or whatever is, is not unique. So you have about half the church in Rome, Jews, who understand the, the cultic sacrificial system of the Old Testament, and then a bunch of pagans who know about it too, because they chop heads off stuff to make the gods do nice things for them, right? So they understand this idea of sacrifice better than we do. You need to imagine, having never experienced it, the, the idea of a living thing 
having its throat slit in front of you as part of an act of liturgical worship and having, having blood sprayed, literally, like sprinkled by the priest on your face so that you would know the wages for sin is death. Like, out of that experience, they're hearing Paul say to them, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your body to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. So here's what we need to understand, because this is fundamental to the Christian life. Living sacrifice, this is part of our liturgy in, in the prayer that we sometimes pray after communion. We offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice, right? Send us out in the power of your spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. All of that is fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. We need to understand fundamentally that being a living sacrifice, giving myself, body and soul, to Jesus in service of him is not about me dying a martyr's death. It's not about me earning favour from God. It's not about me making atonement for my sin. That leads, to, that leads to religious passive aggression. It leads to that whole thing about entitlement. Well, I died for you, so now what are you going to do for me? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a life that is lived in sacrifice for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom and his glory, glory precisely because atonement has already been made. Sins have already been forgiven. Favour has already been granted. I love the way that R.C. Sproul says it in his commentary on Romans. He says, No longer do worshippers come with sheep, goats, bullocks, and cereal offerings and burn them before the Lord as a sacrifice for their sins, but there still is a New Testament sacrificial system. It is not a sacrifice that we give in order to make an atonement but a sacrifice that we give because an atonement has been made for us. Do do you get that? You have to get that. Otherwise, Christianity leads into all kinds of dark places. With the best will in the world, you have to get this. It's not a sacrifice that we give in order to make an atonement, in order to earn God's favour, in order to win his blessing, but a sacrifice that we give freely, graciously, because an atonement has been made for us. Once for all, sacrifice for sins, as Hebrews 11 puts it, Hebrews 10 puts it. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters in Caroline Springs, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. A couple of things there. When he says, offer your bodies, he's not just saying, whatever you do with your body has to be right. He's saying, offer everything, all of you, Whatever is you, 
you offer. It's a whole body, soul thing, right? Everything that you are, you offer to God as a sacrifice, a living, breathing sacrifice. And he says, this is true and proper worship. A more literal translation is, this is reasonable. This is logical. Right? In view of God's mercy, if what Jesus did is true, then the most logical thing in the world is for you to give yourself, to make all of life all about Jesus. He says that's just basic. For Paul, there is no concept of like super Christian missionary goes to Africa and gives, and then hour and a half Sunday morning, hour and 45 if they're being annoying, right? Like that, does, that doesn't exist. For Paul to be a Christian is to know God's mercy and to know God's mercy is to give yourself body and soul in his service. So here's what I know is true. Everyone in this church and everyone in every church going back to the first church struggles with this. It's one of the main reasons Paul wrote to the Corinthian church is that they had divided Christians into different levels of Christian. You know, kind of basic Christian. And then there was kind of like you could upgrade. Speak in tongues, next level, right? And that was what Paul was trying to correct at the time, like you morons. And we've needed to correct it ever since because there's something within us that drives us to this conclusion. So we see... And I think later on we're going to pray for our friends John and Deb who've given up everything back here and gone to Dubai and ministering in a context that can be sometimes pretty tricky politically. And think, Well, that's, that's next level, but I'm just going to get on with my Sunday morning thing. right? And no! Paul says, if you know God's mercy, the most logical next step is to give yourself body and soul to him in service. I feel like my own experience growing up, I've, I've been very, very blessed. Not like hashtag blessed, but like genuinely blessed to have examples of people in my very formative years who lived this out. And so I want to tell you about the example of my grandparents. I never mention this publicly, not in any sermon or talk I've ever given. And it's because every time I've thought to, I can I just hear my granddad's voice. He's... he's to, nearly 20 years now with Jesus. But I just hear him saying, just point them to Jesus, laddie. Just point them to Jesus. But for the purpose of illustration, I really, I really want to talk about him. And his wife, um, the, they had an opportunity in their time to leverage their circumstances greatly for personal gain. So my granddad, born in, both of them actually, born in 1910, he was very precocious, very intelligent, skipped a few grades at school, ended up going to university very young, became a mechanical engineer and an electrical engineer in the days when there weren't many of them in the world, right? And just, and, and, and just had, a, had a brain that was wired, if you pardon the pun, to, for that kind of thing. And, and to the point where he wasn't allowed to go to World War II because he was doing world-class research on... The, uh, the vibrations that the, the power lines um, were giving off that were making them unstable, and it was his job to fix them. He lived on top of a, a 
power, a tower, literally in a little bungalow for a few years trying to figure this stuff out. Just, just you know, we, you can't go and die. We need you for this stuff, that kind of thing. And, and if, you, if you're that kind of person, a bit of a throwback and someone who's not easily replaced, replaced you tend to be well um, recompensed, right? And so they were in a position to really live very comfortably. They, they found a place um, to build a house in Montalbert, leafy eastern suburbs. Everything was, everything was shaping up to, to pave the way for a, a life of comfort. Um, my granddad became, like me actually, a Christian when he was 19. And from that day, his life was completely turned inside out. My nan used to tell the story, and they were married for over 60 years. She said that from that day he became a Christian, she never once heard a, um, a derogatory word from him about someone else. God. I don't know if it skips a couple of generations, but I didn't get that yet. Anyway, I digress. They're in a situation, and then they've bought this home. They're just moving in. They've got two boys, my dad and his older brother, and they hear about this need for a couple to go to a home, Sutherland Homes, it was called, in Diamond Creek, that there were 60 effectively orphans living in this home. They were wards of the state and from broken homes and orphans and 60 kids aged 2 to 18. And they heard that, the, that they needed a, a family to go and to run this place. And they heard that call. And what they heard was a call from Jesus to be a living sacrifice. And so they left what they had accumulated and went to this place. And, and to be honest, dying... Being a sacrifice that dies though it lives is not always like the most beautiful thing in the world. Right? Like death is, 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 is brutal. I talked to my dad who obviously went and lived there. He went from being one of two boys in comfort to living with 60 other rat bags. Right? They ended up adopting a couple of them. Like this was, it's difficult. It costs. You might say that you need to sacrifice. In order, to, in order to follow God's call. And that's exactly why Jesus, I think it's in Luke chapter 14, he says, unless you daily deny yourself and take up your cross, instrument of execution and sacrifice, unless you do that daily, you cannot be my disciple. I'm not saying you've got to pack everything up and go and take over an orphanage or go to Africa or whatever. You, you, you need to figure out what God is calling you to. You need to figure out in your context what it means to be a living sacrifice. But that's the point. Every one of us is called to be a living sacrifice. And so the question is asked, like when you take a normal person and you put this call on their life, and you might be hearing this for one of the first times and, and you, you experience it as being compelling and confronting and, and maybe offensive. and Like, like what, why? why? Why do that? Remember the foundation for all of this. Paul says in verse 1, in view of God's mercy. 
You want motivation to do these hard things? All you have to do, I promise you, all you have to do, if you truly know what it means to be a child of God, saved by grace, all you need to do is meditate on the cross of Jesus Christ. Meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus, freely given in your place and for your sin. In view, in view of God's mercy manifest in the sacrifice of his son, give yourself body and soul as a living sacrifice. You might say, yeah, I get, I get the motivation. I get, it's, I, I get the abstract theological point you're making, but what, where do I start? Like, at this point, I am, I'm just going with the flow. Like, I'm climbing that ladder. I'm trying to provide for this family. I'm, just, I'm, I'm doing what I've been trained to do, what I've been brought up to do. This is the world we live in. How do I, what's the first step? towards living that radical Christian life that you're telling me is the normal Christian life? Well, he gives us he gives us the first part of the answer that he's going to explain for the next four chapters. Paul is not just a brilliant theologian, he's a brilliant pastor, and he really wants us to know, how do we do this? He says in the first part of uh, verse 2, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. You know, I, like I find it's very easy for us, <clears throat> very easy for us to kind of take teenagers as a bad example of this, right, and say, well, teenagers, they're so easily malleable, like they're so, they're so pressured by their peers, they're so self-conscious, they just, they, they're just begging to fit in, and, and so they, they just become like everyone else. Like, you know, like every alternative kid just looks like every other alternative kid. Right? Make fun of that. We've moved past that. The truth is, we haven't. We haven't moved past that. You're, you're that, listen to me, I'm no psychologist, but I know this. You're still that 15-year-old self-conscious kid at school trying to fit in. You've just shift contexts. And you've given yourself a narrative that, kind of releases you from the burden of that, but it's true. You still desperately want to fit in with the herd. You desperately want to conform to the pattern of this world. Everyone does. This is our default, right? This is, this is our default, and then we have a society, a civilization that has been constructed almost with the sole purpose of making us conform. That's like the history of economics. The world spins because we conform and consume. Man, it's getting a bit heady, isn't it? Let's get back to the practical stuff. Paul says, first step, don't do that. Don't conform. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. He's calling us to be more than that. He's calling us in the midst of this world to be agents of reconciliation to be ambassadors for Christ, to stand out, to forge ahead, to blaze a trail. But here's what we need to know really, really clearly. Not conforming to the world is not the same thing as withdrawing from the world. Christians have got this wrong since this was written down, right? We hear don't conform to this world, and some of us, and I think it's largely personality-driven, 
Those of us who are more conservative think, good, all right, circle the wagons. We're, we're, we're just going to go insular here. We're going to withdraw, and we're just going to make sure we're okay, and we stay godly, and the world can go to hell. These people tend to focus on the life to come, and not so much on this present age. But that's not what Paul's saying. Non-conformism isn't the same as withdrawal. Jesus says it in the most beautiful way. In his prayer for his disciples in chapter 17 of John, he says, praying to his Father, I have given them, my disciples, your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. That's the Christian life, right? In the world, but not of the world. In the world, but not conforming to the world. In the world, but kept safe from the evil one. That's the vision we have as God's people. So I tried to figure this out into a tweetable format. I know I'm about 15 years too late for Twitter, and you're all like, what? I haven't even heard of Twitter. But anyway... So we can't conform to the world because it turns us away from Jesus. But we can't be taken out of the world because that's our mission field. That's the reason we're on earth. So here's here's what I think. Don't let the world educate your conscience. Instead, let the world educate your context, all right? So if you let the world educate your conscience, then you start to adjust your morality to fit the ways of this world, and then you just break commandments, and disobey God, and dishonor God. You need to have your mind renewed, this spirit um, directing your conscience so that your ethics, your morality, your way of life matches God's will. But you must let the world educate your context because if you're going to have any impact, if you're going to be that ambassador, if you're going to be that agent, then You need to know the world that you're going to. This guy that's turning left right now in front of me, I don't know, maybe he's come from church, maybe he was at our earlier service, but I'm guessing, like, odds are he's not a Christian. There's like 1% of us in this city. And so so, so here's the thing. I've got beauty pouring out of this book. I've got hope beyond that guy's wildest dreams. And I'm never going to be able to communicate it to him unless I can engage with him. And I'm never going to be able to engage with him unless I understand him. So while I don't want the world to educate my conscience, I do want it to educate my context. I need to know the ways of the world. So, puts it negatively, don't conform to the pattern of this world. Man, I'm way over time. Um, don't, don't conform. You guys going to give me a few extra minutes? There's still heaps of good stuff. All right, don't conform to the pattern of the world. Put it positively, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So 
So he's given us these two paths that we can go down. Conforming to the world, pattern of the world, walking in line, follow the leader, or being transformed, being given a new mind, regenerated, renewed, so that we can walk in God's will. And the image that came to mind as I was thinking about this, because this is all pretty heady, heavy stuff, right? And heady stuff. And I, like, what's the illustration? I, I remember just recently being on leave. We're in Hawaii. My son, Judah, loves turtles. It's like mum, dad, India, turtles, all right? And it's sometimes unclear what the order is. And so, he's, so, so we knew that there was turtles out in, this, in the ocean where we were staying. And so we jumped on a boat and we went out to see the turtles. And we were hardly out of the port when the guy, the captain, stopped the engine. I said this morning, put on the brakes. I don't know. He made the boat stop, all right? Um, and he was smart. He didn't tell us what was going on. So we were like, oh, what's whatever. And as we were waiting to figure out what's going on, we could see these groups of jellyfish just cruising by because that's all jellyfish can do, right? That's... Their whole life is just... (laughs) Watching them go by, we know that turtles, they love to eat jellyfish, so we're like, wow, maybe there's a turtle here. And then all of a sudden, as we're watching these things just drift by, just exploding out of the water, these spinner dolphins just erupted in front of us, which is why I stopped the boat. Just... Crazy, amazing, awe-inspiring animals. Bursting out of the water, spinning, jumping, doing whatever they like, having the best time of their lives. And here's the point. Jellyfish are nominal Christians who conform to the pattern of the world. I want us to be dolphins. Paul wants us to be dolphins. God created us to be dolphins. Dolphins, conform to the pattern of the world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the, that's the pathway God has put before us this morning. I want us to be a church of dolphins. He's going to give us in these next few chapters the most beautiful and compelling picture of the church that there is And it's a church full of dolphins. Don't you want to be a dolphin when the alternative is jellyfish like every other damn person on the earth? We need to come to terms with this now. This is a time of reckoning for us, I think. We need to know that our default is jellyfish. That's our default. You need to know that. If you let yourself go, then you'll let yourself go, right? If you let yourself go, you will just drift into the same pattern as everyone else that's ever lived. But if you allow the word right now, even now, if you allow it to challenge you, to reprove you, to rebuke you, to train you, then there's a life of 
dolphin-like non-conformity that is so liberating, right? As someone who knows what it is to conform to the pattern of the world, I can tell you it's liberating to live as a dolphin. It's free. For freedom, Christ has set you free. This is, what it me- this is what it means to know God's will. To have in view God's mercy, to give yourself as a living sacrifice, and to have your mind renewed. That's what it means to know God's will. And so I've got to tell you, like one of the most frequent questions I get as a pastor for all of time, I don't know how long I've been doing this, like a decade, right? More. The most frequent question people ask is genuine and sincere. Like, how do I know God's will? Oh, I, I believe that God knows what's best for me. How do I know what he knows? The truth is, you won't know God's will. You can't know God's will. Your natural default is to work against God's will. Your natural default prayer is, My kingdom come, my will be done. And so, to break that, to set you on a path following God whose paths can't be traced out, right? To set you on that path, you're going to need a new mind. I put it in tweetable format. Here we go. Do you want to know what the will of God is? You have to think like God. That makes sense. That's why you can't know the will of God without knowing the word of God. God has made himself known, friends. Knowing, like figuring out God's will is not about going through tea leaves or, I don't know, any other stupid thing you can think of, right, that people have done over the years to try and figure out left from right. It's not about that because Christian faith is not about speculation. It's about revelation. You got that? Christian faith is not about speculation. I wonder what God would do in this situation. I wonder, right? It's not about that. It's about revelation. God has made himself known in his word and in the word, his son. I wonder what God's like. Read the Gospels. Jesus is what God is like. I wonder what God's mind is on this. Read his word. He reveals himself and his ways to you. You cannot know the will of God apart from knowing the word of God, and that's word in word and capital W in Jesus. So here's what I want to say, and I've used too much of your time. Really, I just I feel like we've opened a little window into the next four chapters. And if we take the time, and that means turning up, right? If we turn up, I think we've got another five sermons, God willing. If we turn up and put our eye up to that window, Paul is going to give us a beautiful vision of what he's calling the church to be. We've got a couple of verses into it, and it's compelling. 
It's convicting. But there's so much more that he wants to show us. So I encourage you, be here, come along, soak it up, ask questions, encourage one another as we seek to make all of life all about Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we're humbled that you would condescend to us. You're all-knowing, you're all-wise, and yet you speak to us in words we can understand, in ways that we can apply. I thank you for that. We need you. We know that we're prone to wander, we're prone to drift like jellyfish, but you have so much more for us than that. I just, just glory now in the love of God in Christ Jesus. God Almighty. The reckless love of God. Lord, we delight in your mercy. We thank you for your grace. And in view of that mercy, we ask that you would send us out to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. Lord, even now as we sing and give voice to what we feel, give voice to our gratitude, I pray that you would fill us up and stir up godly affections for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. that although there are things in our life and things in history that seems like tragic defeats for the gospel, you're actually securing eternal victories. And we eagerly await the salvation of Israel. Father, I pray for us that we as a church would continue to trust in the promises of God. That we would not forsake you. That you would preserve us by grace and in grace. And I pray that we would pray and preach with expectancy. Give us bold hearts to us Jewish brothers and sisters. Father, I also pray that by your spirit and by your word, you would encourage us and edify us to see you as glorious as you are in Romans 11. That we would see you as big and strong and mighty in suffering that when everything seems to have gone wrong, we continue to trust you and trust your promises. Give us a boldness that comes from you, a strength that comes from you, and an endurance that comes from you. Father, let us not be arrogant or prideful, but let us boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus. We pray this prayer, and everyone in the church said with one big, loud voice, Amen. Friends, there are going to be a number of people to the side who if you've been affected or you've got questions or you just want someone to pray with you, we can pray with you. But other than that, let us stand to our feet and worship God.